1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Barcelos about their new book, Distributing Condoms and Hope, The Racialized Politics of Youth Sexual Health, published by the University of California Press in 2020. Chris Barcelos is Assistant Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston and is also affiliated with the Critical Ethnic and Community Studies and Latino Studies programs at UMass Boston. Their work combines critical race theory and critical sexuality studies with community-based research to analyze public health efforts. They emphasize research for and by marginalized people that contributes to effective policies and programs and is guided by the needs and priorities of those most affected. Chris is also an associate book review editor at TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly, and a consultant with Think Again Training, as well as a yoga teacher. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Well, it's a pleasure. I really enjoyed your book and learned a lot from it. Uh, But I wonder, first, would you just tell us something about your own background and also what got you interested in studying teen pregnancy and youth sexual health?
0: Sure. So that story has two pathways. The first is that when I was in graduate school, the first time around, I was working on a master's in public policy. And I was working in this community that I, in the book, called Millerson, um, in a variety of community-based public health organizations. And so I was exposed to Um, a lot of the ways that politics around race and gender and class and sexuality were playing out in these organizations and in the work that we did um, in these communities. And and also noticing that there was a lot of power relationships that weren't talked about, right? So uh, there was a phenomenon where there were a lot of people from outside of this community uh, who came to work in that community in public health and didn't share the same experiences of marginalization and oppression than the folks that we served. And we also, uh, you know, I noticed the way that people talked about the people that we served as, you know, there was something wrong with them or they weren't very intelligent or just ways that really discounted the ways that racism, classism, et cetera, impact people's ability to be healthy. So I was noticing um, these power relationships and kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, feeling really icky about it. And I had this moment that I talk about in the book where I was sitting in my cubicle and I was writing a grant. I don't even remember what it was about. And I just thought if I had to use this same sentence I used over and over again, which was, you know, Latinos in this community are disproportionately overweight and obese because of, quote, Latino cultural food practices. Like this, you know, reducing, you know, the fact that people don't have access to safe places to exercise or to healthy foods, to their individual behaviors or cultural practices. And I just thought, if I have to say this really reductive racist thing one more time, I'm just going to totally lose, just lose it. Um, and so that was part of what inspired me to go back to school and to work on a PhD in community health. Um, So I had been working in this community in Millerston. and as part of my uh, PhD program, I also became involved with an organization in the book I call The Townhouse, which is a school for pregnant and parenting young women that really focuses on uh, building up pregnant and parenting teen parents so that they can be... Uh, successful in the world as whole human beings. And it's unique because a lot of educational and social service programs for young parents are really, again, focused on, you know, remediating them or uh, making them good workers or assuming that they're bad parents and that needs to be corrected. So this program focused on the humanities and the arts, along with, you know, typical social service stuff, like help helping um, young people get on Medicaid or find daycare or that kind of thing. So it was this really unique and special place. And I was drawn to that in particular because I was also a teen parent and had a very unusual path through uh, life itself, but also through academia and my, and my professional life too, right? So I got pregnant as a teenager and... Um, you know, it was like your life is over, you've ruined your life, you're going to be a bad parent, you're a drain on society, et cetera. And that was the thing that as a young person that politicized me, it was when I started reading about feminism and racial politics and capitalism and all of this other stuff. And that was that. What that experience was what, uh, you know, led me to go to college and then eventually to graduate school. And then um, this was a book that began as many uh, academic books do as a dissertation. And I really didn't want to continue to research and talk about teen pregnancy and parenting. Like I had lived it. I had written about it in research and you know, done a lot of activist work around it. And I was like, I just need to do something else. Right. I need to think about and talk about something else. And because I had worked in this community for a long time and had been doing some, some work with the townhouse, it, it just kind of all fell into place um, and the stars aligned in a way that, this was the work I was doing for my research, and then eventually became this book. And so, um, even though it was, you know, I was like so sick of thinking about it at the time, I, you know, realize now many years later that this work is really important. And it also has a lot of lessons to teach us for the way that we do community based public health. And surprisingly, actually, I think a lot of lessons for. Um, it's the last year and a half in the world when we've been talking about and thinking about public health in ways that, you know, many people never did before.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, one thing I wanted to ask you about right away is uh, this town, which you call Millerston. Mm-hmm. and But that's a, um, a not its real name. And Correct. you say that when you've been giving uh, talks and lectures in other parts of the country, Sometimes people will say, or often people will say, "Oh, yes, I know that town isn't that the one right down the road mm-hmm. uh, and it's not, of course, and so what is it about Millerston that makes it representative when it comes to teen pregnancy
0: That's a great question, and yes, that happens a lot. Um, often people are like you said, are wrong, um, and every, I like to, it's kind of a game I you know like to play of like can they guess and they usually don't so um Millerston is a specific place, but I think it is also representative of a lot of U.S. cities, right? So it's a small city under 100,000 people, um, and it's a deindustrialized former manufacturing community, um, as there are so many of those across the United States, right? And it never really recovered from the decline of manufacturing. It's also a community that's predominantly Puerto Rican in an overall area that is not, um, and so those two things—the fact that it's you know, deindustrialize mostly poor and working class people, um, predominantly non-white, uh, existing in a region that is affluent and white predominantly allows these power relationships to kind of flourish, but also the way that people talk about it, right? So, you know, everywhere I've lived in the U.S., there's always. Uh, some place that it's like, oh, over there is where bad stuff happens or where poor people live or where brown folks live and you don't want to go there unless it's like to work in health and human services, right? Or, or um, you know, if you work at a college or university, there's often that town nearby where your undergraduate students do their internships, but they would never live there. Um, so it is both a specific place and also representative of just larger patterns in racial and economic um, politics in the US of, you know, the way that manufacturing disappeared, the way that forced migration and displacement from our colony of Puerto Rico has um, changed the um, makeup of many communities um, in, the new, in the Northeast and in the Midwest of the United States too.
1: So a lot of factors playing into the phenomena of teen pregnancy, other than um, teens having sex. And, Indeed. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to go actually go through definition there because you you talk about or you write about how um, this is called teen pregnancy, but a lot of people um, think of teen pregnancies happening to 14, 15, 16 year olds. And often we're talking about people who are legally adults, 18 or 19. And I just wonder, um, you mentioned your own teen pregnancy. Did you think of yourself as a teenager or as an adult at that time?
0: That's a great question. So to answer the first part, yes. So when we, when epidemiologists, people who study population health, write or talk about teen pregnancy, they do it often to mean um, people uh, ages 14 through 19. And it's often hard to, um, usually we're talking about the teen birth rate, I should say, because the teen pregnancy rate is a little bit harder to measure because of miscarriages and abortions. So we don't actually um, we usually talk about the teen birth rate. Um, and so, yes, that number includes people who are 14 and also people who are 18 and 19. And like you said, legal adults. But if we break those numbers down and I, this is in the book and easily found um, online, the vast majority of pregnancies that fall under this definition of teen pregnancies are are people who are 18 and 19. So they're they're legal adults, many of them. Uh, the young women that I interview in the book, and to answer the second part of your question, uh, myself as well, have a really complicated relationship to the word teen parent, Um, because it's stigmatized, because it's racialized, and because also when you're 18, most people don't think of themselves as teenagers, right? Um, uh, Maybe as a young person, but not necessarily as a teenager. And certainly not if you're raising a kid um, and living on your own, right? You tend to not think of yourself as a, a teenager anymore. Um, so part of what the reporting of the data as, um, you know, 14 to 19 does, it, is, it obscures the fact that most of the time when we're talking about teen pregnancy, we're talking about adults. Um, yeah.
1: That's really interesting because that then becomes kind of an arbitrary definition And so all of the statistics on teen pregnancy might actually be really different if you said, say it was 14 through 17-year-olds. For sure. Um, And did the young women who you encountered and, and were involved with in your research, who were 18 and 19, did they consider themselves teenagers, you know, sort of not independent or did they consider themselves more or less independent adults?
0: That's a good question. I think that the answer is it's complicated and that it was shifting. And so in one conversation or one session of a pro, you know a program I'd be facilitating at the school Um, The young women would just really just rail on the idea of teen pregnancy and and talk, you know, talk trash about teen parents. And they're in those moments thinking of of young women who are like 14, 15, right, or even 16, um, who they really often work to set themselves apart from. And that wasn't just about age, but it was also about like, you know, I'm getting my GED or I'm with the father of my kid or I'm going to college So setting themselves up as respectable, as a way to distance themselves from the stigma of being a teen parent, right? And then in the next conversation, they would sort of take on the word teen parent or teen mom as a more of a reclaimed identity. And so, you know, it's not easily described as a binary either or. Um, It's more of this kind of shifting negotiation that you're, when you're part of this stigmatized group. And I often talk about like teen preg- uh, teen um, parents and teen pregnancy is a group of people and a, and a social phenomenon that that most people in America love to hate across political beliefs, right? So on the right, people, conservatives love to hate on teen pregnancy, but that's also really big on the political left, right? So a lot of the punitive uh, social policies around teen pregnancy and parenting come from democratic uh, presidential administrations and bill clinton in particular so teen parents being this group that kind of everyone loves to hate uh, um, you know means that you're as a teen parent constantly negotiating that marginalization and that stigma but also and I, I, this happened in my own life, and it, I certainly saw it happening at the townhouse of a way of kind of finding uh, a way to reclaim that and also finding sometimes solidarity with other teen parents through the shared experience of being marginalized. Um, but also, I think the power in you know, doing this thing that the whole world is telling you you cannot do or should not do, and then you're kicking ass at it and taking mm-hmm. names. And I think that's really powerful, too.
1: Yeah. And it kind of raises the question, is there a qualitative difference between someone who is a 19 year old parent or a 20 or 21 year old parent? Because very shortly, if you give birth at 18 or 19, you're no longer a teen parent. And I, I have a stepdaughter who missed being a teen parent by one year and no one ever thought of her as a teen parent. Yeah, Um, you know, and she quickly, you know, it took off in her life very well. Of course she had a lot of opportunities, but, um, you know, it, it's interesting and there there is that stigma based on uh, what is the year and how we've decided to to define it. Um, I was struck by your description of being at one of these uh, meetings of a lot of stakeholders in the, um, what you call the, which I'll ask you in about a moment, the teen pregnancy prevention industrial complex. And everybody had a goodie bag and they were asked to, you know, they were encouraged to, Wave their noisemakers around whenever somebody mentioned lowering the teen pregnancy rate, um, and I hadn't realized there was that kind of, um, how shall I put it? Um, I don't know that kind of cheerleading approach, I guess, to to bringing the rate down as a um, as a marker of improved, I guess, improved public health or improved socioeconomic health. Correct. And was, was that common, um, that sort of rah-rah approach, uh, really common among the, the groups? It's interesting how you describe, sorry, just, I didn't mean to cut you off, but just how you describe the people who work in it as um, really well-intentioned, but sometimes missing
0: the point yeah. in critical ways. Yep. So, yes, I found that that sort of, like you said, raw, raw approach. I think that's a great way of capturing it. actually it was very common in teen pregnancy prevention work. And I think across public health in general, too. And I'm thinking of um, a lot of federal and state initiatives right now around HIV AIDS and this notion of getting to zero and ending the AIDS crisis by X year, which I think is like next year or something like this, right? And a lot of people who have been doing HIV AIDS work for decades, including AIDS activism, are kind of like, you know, what that means is that people with access and privilege to antiretroviral medicines, AIDS is over for them, right? It it means that like AIDS is over for privileged people. It doesn't literally mean that there's no more HIV infections or that no one around the world is living with or dying from AIDS. And, uh, you know, you could see the same thing in just the last like six weeks in the United States with the COVID pandemic. Right. It was just kind of like, OK, we're done now. It's over. Right? Mm. We did it. <laughs> Hooray. Go back to the club and party. Um, so I think that that comes from You know, the fact that working in community based nonprofits is hard work, right? It's poorly paid. It's hard work. um, It's not often appreciated. It's often invisible. Right. Like if you work in medicine, your neighbor knows what you do. If you work in public health, they think they don't actually really know what you do all day. Right. Um, So I think that that contributes to public health workers of many, many varieties really needing to boost morale. And I I think that was a part of it, right? Like they they wanted to, you want to have a success, right? And there's a saying in community public health that we're trying to work ourselves out of a job. So the idea is that we're working on this particular health inequity, you know, HIV, AIDS, COVID, whatever. And then eventually we'll, we'll fix it. And then we won't have a job anymore. Like there'll be no more grant money, there'll be no need for us. And that's kind of talked about as this aspirational thing. Um, and I, I, I feel very critical of it because, um, you know, I don't think people actually want, literally want to lose their jobs. And also, you know, the idea that we can totally eliminate HIV or totally eliminate teen pregnancy. And again, those things are not commensurable, right? One is a disease state and one is just having a, you know, normal life process earlier than the mean, right? But anyways, um, that we can eliminate these things, you know, without also eliminating white supremacy or capitalism or, Environmental collapse, right? Like these things are all wrapped up in each other, and just having a singular idea that, well, there'll be no more of X um, misses these larger systems in place. Um, I think that in Millerston, The self-congratulations also had the effect of masking the privilege and power that a lot of people doing this work had in relation to the people they were, public health will say, prioritizing or targeting, right, the population of of teenagers. Um, So it was another way of, uh, you know, it's linked to this history and of particular, particularly of white women's benevolence in responding to communities of color um, in really problematic and exploitative ways, right? It's a way of we know what's best, and we will tell you what to do with your bodies. And therefore, um, you know, we can count success once we've done that.
1: Hmm. So that... Starts to answer what was going to be my next question, but I'll ask it anyway just to say it overtly. Um, because a lot of the approaches approaches that you describe that are taken by these public health workers would probably seem laudable to the public um, or the average onlooker. So, sure. what, for instance, is intrinsically wrong with trying to reduce teen pregnancy rates? And also, how would you go about explaining? what's wrong to those people who are invested in uh, the teen pregnancy prevention industrial complex?
0: Sure. So what research has shown, both epidemiological and more qualitative or ethnographic research um, for quite some time now, is that what we associate as the problem of teen pregnancy or its related outcomes, so um, young women not finishing school or getting... um, good job or um, their children experiencing health or social or educational inequalities. What research has shown us is that those poor outcomes are actually much more related to something besides the the age at which their mother had them, right? It's around um, pre-existing poverty. It's around there being no jobs. It's around racism in schools, right? So for example, there's a very often... Uh, stated statistic that getting pregnant causes young people to drop out of high school, and if you drop out of high school, you're lower, you have lower lifetime earnings, you're less likely to go to college, etc. Um, and and in, when we actually, you know, talk to young people, and including the women that I, young women I interviewed in in this book, is that they left school before they got pregnant. They were pushed out of school, as many other educational scholars have shown, by policing in schools, by racist Um, teaching, um, by not seeing their communities, lives, et cetera, in the curriculum, Um, by the fact that like a lot of our schools are um, sites of carcerality, right, where we just police young people and young women and, and young women of color in particular. Um, So, you know, the solution is reduce the teen pregnancy rate, not, you know, get cops out of schools or have a minimum, uh, you know, a universal minimum wage or universal basic guaranteed income, right? The problem becomes something else, right? um so that's kind of the one thing right is that the things we think we're solving with reducing teen pregnancy and teen birth rates are actually caused by something else right so we're the target is misplaced and um it, you know that that is the argument that i would use for the most skeptical but those who are interested in thinking even beyond that, you know, we have to consider the really long history of people in power, regulating the reproduction and sexuality of of people with less social power, right, which has a really long history in the United States and around the world. Um, And so the book is framed through the lens of reproductive justice, um, or a vision, uh, framework and social movement that's kind of reframing, like access to abortion as the primary, Um, strategy and thinking uh, more capaciously about the right to choose the families we want and parent them with dignity and support. So for example, in the last, um, just this summer, we've seen a lot of Um, news about remains discovered at um, forced Indian boarding schools across North America, right, where young indigenous children were taken from their families and forced into these violent institutions where they were forced to assimilate, and now we know there are unaccounted bodies, right? So that is just one example of, you know, white settlers saying to indigenous families, like, your parenting practices, your communities, your ways of life is wrong, and we're going to take your kids from them and force them into these violent institutions to assimilate into kind of white colonial society, that is just one example of this really long history of telling other people what to do with their bodies and their reproduction and their families, right? Um, mm-hmm. So it's these two things, right? It's that the outcomes we associate as the problem of teen pregnancy are actually generally caused by something else, um, that there's this much longer and darker history in politics. Um, and then I actually, will add to that, that part of the, Part of the thing I'm critiquing and, and you know i, I as I, I say in the book, you know I have to give this caveat all that all, a lot that you know um, uh, I don't think teen pregnancy is a problem. I think the ways that we talk about it is a problem, I think the ways that we treat pregnant and parenting young women is a problem. I think the way that we use stigma and shame as a health behavior tool is a problem, um, but we all need, we also need to stop and think of. The ways that um, from a health and human services perspective or an educational perspective, um, teen parents have really been, um, you know, they're like I, I used the townhouse as an example of a program that was doing really good work because there are so few. Right. So there's very little affirmative um you know, holistic, whole person approaches to improving the lives of teen parents. It's really just like, you're a slut, you're bad, you ruined your life, you ruined your kid's life, you're a grand society, go away, right? Um, or it's really focused on what's called secondary pregnancy prevention, or it's just like, you need to get on contraception, like, forget about daycare, safe housing, you know, help filling out your FAFSA. It's like, you need to get on on contraception. Like you can't make that mistake again twice. Right. Um, So we, I think we have to ask really hard questions of like, here's a vulnerable group of people in the world. And our approach to improving their lives is to shame them. Right. And to ignore the actual things they need, which um, you know, as they show in the book, right. What, um, people thought teen parents need was, you know, access to contraception or sex education. What they articulated as their need was, um, you know, freedom from violence and housing and daycare and um, help navigating all of these systems that, you know, shame them and tell them that they, their children shouldn't exist, right? That their families who they love shouldn't exist. Hmm. I think that answers all your questions.
1: It does. It does. And that's, you know, what you say about the power structures and, and to racialized power structures as well. I think that's something that we as an American society probably don't think about very much in terms of uh, reproductive justice, because if anything, we would uh, tend to see it in terms of men and women, Mm -hmm. men having the power over women. But as you uh, also raise the point in the book, it's not just those, those are not the only two gender identities Mm -hmm. um, that exist as well. So, um, Definitely something that is, it seems really under recognized. Um, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the teen pregnancy prevention industrial complex, could you explain what that is?
0: Sure. Um, so, the teen pregnancy prevention industrial complex is my framework for naming the sets of relationships that play out in Millerston and in other contexts, right? Um, so It's important to note that I'm drawing on scholars and activists who mobilize a critique of the prison industrial complex and focus on um, abolition, right? So abolishing, abolishing the prison industrial complex and um, that in turn uh, helped us articulate critiques of the nonprofit industrial complex, um, of which there's this great edited volume called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Um, and uh, so I'm really drawing on that work, right? To think of this particular um, complex of preventing teen pregnancy as not just a, like a site, right? So the nonprofit or prison industrial complex is not just about individual prisons or individual nonprofit organizations. It's about the relationships between all of these different organizations, who funds them, um, between academic research, Uh, parts of the government, local, federal, states, collaborators, um, and the people in these communities, right? So it's a way of really visualizing these webs of power and that visualizing these webs of power helps us think about a way into dismantling and disrupting them. Um, so, it's not to, the, the teen pregnancy prevention industrial complex is not intended to be this kind of totalizing, in, you know, Im, immovable thing. It's a framework for helping us understand how power moves around community health and teen pregnancy prevention in particular. Um, so, I'm thinking about forms of knowledge, so the idea of evidence-based public health, right? which Um, on the surface, you know, seems like really great. Like, why would we make public health decisions just kind of willy-nilly? But as many scholars have shown, right, what is considered uh, valid evidence is pretty narrow, right? So um, thinking about what, who has the power to name a problem and how it's solved, right? Um, And often that's already people in power, right? Um, In this complex is also the um, ways that the U.S. federal government has prioritized um, millions and millions of dollars into teen pregnancy prevention, um, which has historically been linked to abstinence-only sex education. So that is sort of – those things have gone hand in hand, right? So the dismantling of the U.S. welfare state was, from from its inception, linked to millions of dollars in preventing teen pregnancy Um, So that, you know, looking at this web of relations helps us think like, so what else is going on here, right? This isn't just about, um, you know, regulating when people decide to make a family, it's also about our ideas of dependency and dependency in the US welfare state is always racialized, right? And it's always assumed to be people of color as a drain on on the system, right? Not as vulnerable people needing resources and support. Um, So, you know, in this complex are also all of these different organizations and projects and coalitions and that kind of thing. Um, And then, you know, the individual actors within them, how they are negotiating this power or these forms of knowledge. Um, And I think importantly, and this is a big uh, also takeaway from. Scholars and activists to analyze the nonprofit or prison industrial complexes is um, where the um, how the money moves around, right? Um, so in The greater Millerson area there was you know over over a million dollars um, In singular grants that circulated during the time I was doing this research um, and this is a city that um, needed a lot. Right. Like there was um, that kind of cash in the city could have done a lot of social and educational uh, programming work, um, but it was very narrowly focused on reducing the teen birth rate. Right. Um, And that money was always supposed to be about sexual health more generally, but it was really only about teen pregnancy. Right. It was not about Um, STIs or HIV or consent or pleasure. It was really just about preventing um, teen pregnancy because people really wanted that rate to go down. They were very stuck on this high rate um, in this particular city. Um, So what else do I want to say about that? Um, It's, you know, there's, there's kind of a critique among scholars and activists of like, do we have an industrial complex complex? Like, is literally everything an industrial complex? And then is this even a useful framework? Um, but I, I offer it. And I think it's useful for for thinking about um, how teen pregnancy prevention became the thing that is the concern for young people, right? Um, and that's akin to in some of my newer work is, is more about queer and trans youth and how for them that has been um, uh, some somewhat sexual health or HIV prevention, but also around suicide prevention, right? Which is a real thing and a real problem, but it also comes at the expense of thinking of them as whole beings with other needs, lives, desires, bodies, etc. Hmm.
1: I think that's really helpful to see it in terms of uh, visualizing a web of power. Um, and as you say, follow the money is so often the key. Uh, so you've mentioned sex education and how that's seen as, um, preventing sex, <laughs> preventing mm-hmm. young people from having sex. And, um, towards the end of the book, you say, this is a quote, we ought to consider not only what sex education might prevent, but also what it promotes Mm -hmm. Uh, So what should it
0: promote? Sure. And I also want to note that that idea I get from Jessica Fields, who is a brilliant sociologist and public health scholar whose work I very much admire. Um, She writes about that in her book, Risky Lessons, which is about the battles of sex education um, in abstinence. Focus format or what we call a comprehensive format. So um, one of the things I often tell my undergraduate students that's quite surprising to them is that comprehensive sex education and abstinence sex education are actually really very similar in their approaches. Um, The main variable that is different is that one can talk about condoms and one does not, pretty much. Um, So, to think about what it can promote, right, it's really only focused on prevention, or, or, you know, which is um, what it, you know, what are the bad things that we don't want to happen, right? We don't want people to get STIs, we don't want people to get pregnant, which we could then also say like, you know, most STIs are curable and treatable. So is that like the most horrible thing in the whole world, right? That is linked to a very long history of stigma that's based in ableist ideas about bodies, right? Um, You know, the, the, What's hard about being a teen parent is that society um, stigmatizes you and shames you and denies you the resources you need, both at a, like an interpersonal level and a social level, right? So, um, you know, what could we promote instead um, is opens up a much broader set of ideas, right, that, you know, we can promote um, agency among young people, and that could include getting a long lasting form of contraception or that could include not having sex if you don't want to or that could include just having sex with yourself or that could include um you know exploring your identity or your body your pleasure in in any kind of way right um but it's only really focused on what are the bad things we want to get rid of and not the things we want to promote right so we could promote consent-oriented culture among young people, right? We could promote the dismantling of rape culture. We could promote um, transformative justice approaches to sexual and reproductive health where it's not about punishment, um, like punishing our um, other people in our communities or stigmatizing people who deviate from the norm, right? So thinking about the ways that... Young people, but also adults, right? Stigmatize people for their um, decisions around their body, right? Whether that's about sex or drugs or, you know, body size, right? Um, So, I mean, I think to sum up, right, we could promote bodily autonomy, we could promote racial justice, we could promote pleasure, we could promote self determination. Um, And if we did all of those things, you know, we would probably also see lower rates of unintended pregnancies or uh, or STIs.
1: Hmm. And I wonder, in order to promote those things, would we have to educate a whole new generation of public health workers, or could you retrain the existing ones to think from that framework?
0: That is a great question. Um, I mean. I think that the, you know, the last year and a half in the U.S. public health world has really uh, been interesting. That was a really reflective way of saying it. Um, But I think it's also a moment, right? There's like, um, there's a moment of possibility. um, And I I here I'm thinking about this moment last summer when we were, most of the U.S. was under some kind of social distancing lockdown and people were in the streets protesting against police brutality and white supremacy in ways that we have not seen in those large numbers, right? This work has been happening, but people were mobilized um, in a really huge way. Um, and that has, I think, opened the door a little bit for people to have these conversations. I think that we're already seeing, um, uh, I mean, you know, the like backlash against teaching about race in, in schools or, um, you know, the crop of uh, bills restricting access to healthcare for trans youth. Like, there's a lot of, um, I think, reactionary things happening to the moments of last summer. But I also think that I have seen anecdotally social workers or public health professionals or health educators have to reckon with white supremacy and have to reckon with transphobia and other um, interlocking forms of oppression um, because they're sort of forced to, right? And sometimes this takes the form of like a one day diversity and inclusion workshop that, you know, probably doesn't do a whole lot to uh, disrupt power in public health. But, um, you know, it, it also, you know, so there's that happening, but I think there's also a collective like, oh shit right we 're implicated in all of this moment right um, and so for, so what i 'm thinking of here to uh, use a concrete example is that you know following the uprisings, following um, the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis last year, there was a lot of people who were getting uh, the idea of abolishing the police or abolishing the prison industrial complex was a really new concept for them, and so um, uh, there was a lot of calls, even like everything from like the New York Times op ed page to, you know, people having hot takes on Twitter of, you know, well let's uh, let's replace the police with like social workers and public health professionals um, to, you know, acknowledge that a lot of what we're thinking police actually do is not police work. Right. And also, um, you know, policing is silence. But um, and so very quickly, a lot of us who do critical public health work were like, okay, hold, slow down a second, right? Like, um, replacing the police with social workers and public health professionals is not necessarily going to skirt around the structures of white supremacy that create violence for black and brown people in the United States, right? Because social work and public health are, are, are professions that are built in that, right? Historically, and there's lots of historians who have, who have documented the ways that plays out. So, um, but I think that that reckoning also makes it that people are starting to um, to think about this. Like, so as another, you know, bit of evidence, I'm seeing a lot of um, white dominated health and human service orgs or nonprofits are having to dismantle and or reform their board or realize that, like, they are complicit in these same structures that they think that they're um, working against. So, I believe that answers the original question, but I know I've strayed from whatever it was. It does. No, I was going to say,
1: wow, you know, very good point, uh, too, about the public health workers
0: um, being a part of
1: that system as well.
0: Yeah, and I will say also in in terms of like um, training new professionals, I think that part of what the book shows and also what the last year and a half of um, the, you know, many crises of COVID and and other crises have showed us is that um, the people who are most affected by whatever's at hand are the people who need to be determining um, to be in leadership determining what to do about it right so um, I think that you know I was really nervous when the vaccine was rolling out and we were seeing all this news coverage of like oh you know um Black folks, Latinx folks, poor folks, et cetera, you know, are not going to want to get the vaccine. We're going to have to convince them to get the vaccine. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. Right. Like, I really believe everyone should get the covid vaccine. But I also think that white public health professionals are the people who should be going out convincing, um, you know, marginalized folks to do something with their bodies. Right. Because that is very really like concretely linked to a history of medical violence. Right. Um, that it's not it's not like that's in the past. Right. So a lot of op-eds were like, oh, Tuskegee experiment, et cetera. And then people had rebuttals like, no, that that stuff still kind of happens. Right. It's not as uh, it's just more subtle. Right. It's harder to to um, name. But anyways, I, at least in Boston, I, where I live now, I've been really pleased that, you know, it seems to be um, community leaders in the communities with low vaccination rates that are doing the work of um you know, promoting the vaccine and in, in their neighborhoods and in their communities. And so I think that, you know, I see these moments of hope um, in changing the way we do public health work.
1: Yeah, that's good. And there's uh, some very white communities that are not getting vaccinated.
0: uh, I think. True, true. But the, but notice how the news coverage is often like, oh, you know, Black folks need to get the vaccine. Yeah. Latinx yeah. folks need to get a vaccine. Um, the you know, it's it, lots of media scholars have talked about the way that you know the media talks about racialized groups versus versus non racialized groups in that way. Yeah,
1: um, for sure. Uh, I wanted to go back to a, another um, term definition because you use the term mess and messiness, and you know, I'm not so familiar with it being used in this sense. But when you talk about the the messiness of the young mother's lives, uh, or young parents' lives, I should say, and uh, also the mess that you create in writing this book. What what do you Mm -hmm. mean by that?
0: So here I am drawing on the work of an anthropologist named Martin Minolanson, who writes about queer as mess. And I um, just love his work. And um, it really spoke to me both as a concept and as a methodology. Um, because part of what public health tries to do on a conceptual, conceptual level is clean up mess, right? The mess of inequality, the mess of poor health, the mess of bodies, right? Um, and mess is, um, it, you know, so part of what preventing teen pregnancy is about is promoting normativity, right? It's about promoting a normative social idea of when you should have a baby, under what circumstances, at what age, with what partner, with how much money in the bank, right? Um, and the the deviations from that normativity become very, um, uh, are messy, right? And so it's um, uh, both in the literal sense of like, the lives of a lot of, you know, my life and the life of a lot of young parents is really messy, right? We're dealing with these messy systems. We're dealing with the stigma of being this abject person in the world. Um, You know, the mess of living uh, under, you know, in uh, various uh, systems of inequality. Um, But also like, the existence of of multiply marginalized people like teen parents messes up our, our ideas about normativity it messes up the idea of like what is the quote-unquote right age to have a kid or in what family formation is the best way to raise a child right it messes up our ideas about um even you know to go back to your earlier point about the way we say teen pregnancy teen parents but we mean adults um, it even messes up the idea of age, right, so like um you know, you said your stepdaughter kind of narrowly missed that um it was like twenty when they had their kid, but like for many people, like that is just discursively or conceptually like teen teen parenthood, right It's not about an actual number, it's about an idea um, and so mess helps us think about just messing up all of these neat and tidy arrangements of Um, family formations and reproduction and, um, you know, accumulating capital in terms of, you know, like a lot of my um, undergrads I've worked with over the years, you know, they have these very arbitrary ideas of like, well, when I do blank is when I can have kids, right? Like when I like have a 401k or when I have a house or when I have a partner. And um, so, you know, the concept of mess is, is, intertwined and related with the concept of queer as an analytic, not ne- not necessarily an identity, as a way of disrupting or destabilizing something, right? So um, it helps us destabilize uh, and disrupt our ideas about family, about bodies, about gender, about all these things. Well, I really like that.
1: I, I love the idea of um, messing things up in terms of um, you know, messing up our perceptions, and mm-hmm. do you think that is doing good? Do you think that's having an effect on society? and um, is there is there a recognition of positive disruption through messiness,
0: or I is think it seen so. only as
1: what a mess? <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, that's part of what Mel um, M- 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 Anson's work does. He has his, um, uh, often writes about the show Hoarders. Um, it's, you know, like a reality show where there's these, you know, they go to someone's storage unit or their home and it's full of all this junk and that the idea is to like make it neat and tidy and normative and good, right? right. So, um, you know, I, it, I think it helps us have um, so part of, uh, a lot of what I do in my teaching and research is, is helping us think through how I binaries are usually not accurate and don't serve us. Right. So an idea of like good and bad, right? Like there's good reproduction, there's bad reproduction. There's a good age to have a kid. There's a bad age to have a kid. Um, When in reality, it's just way more messy than that. Right. So um, I have, you know, uh, colleagues who have, have done work showing that idea, like the the concept of unintended versus intended pregnancy is not a binary, right? And for most people, it's much messier than that, right? And that's true of teenagers, that's true of adults in married monogamous relationships (laughs) with access to healthcare, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's usually much more gray than it is um, a binary of either or, right? So I think that acknowledging the mess is actually helping us acknowledge it's um, uh, helping us acknowledge that stuff is way more complicated, complicated and complex than easy assumptions lead us to believe.
1: Yeah, and actually thinking about it, uh, before birth control, there were a lot of women who would have a child in their 40s or around 45. I think my my great grandmother did. Uh, which Mm -hmm. also really messes up your life in a way. I I don't mean also messes up your life, but I mean, it can be quite disruptive. um, For sure. And not helpful to leading an easy life. Maybe I'll put it that way. Indeed. Yeah. So your title is Distributing Condoms and Hope, which implies that that's not enough, but yet you do (laughs) sound hopeful. So where do you derive your
0: hope from? Oh, um... I'm intrigued. That I, you think I sound hopeful. <laughs> um, uh, I I have, like I said a moment ago, I have hope. I have I have educated hope, as I write in the book, right? So, kind of negotiating um, a vision of the world I want to see and the, the kind of material realities that we're working with, but. Um, you know, every time I see a news article that this all white organization has been forced to resign or um, you know, the board has been forced to resign um, or that, um, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, a black professor denied tenure is quickly scooped up by um, a more prestigious institution. Right. With tenure. Right. I have some hope when I see um, these kind of breaks in disrupting power happen and. Um, And, um, you know, that's not to say that I'm, 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 uh, I would say personally, I'm overall a glass half empty kind of a person. (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, the title is a, is a, is is kind of sarcastic, right? It's a like right. play on the idea that we could just give people condoms and say have hope for a better future, and then it's like, oh great, now I have a, a good job with a you know steady income and a retirement account, right? And like my kids can walk to the corner store and not be threatened with violence from police because they're black or brown, right? Like that's that's just not how the world works. But um, but these like small moments in which everything seems broken, right? And I think the last year and a half was an extended (laughs) extended moment in which everything was broken and still is right like I don't want to act like whenever you're listening to this podcast that the crisis is over and its effects are over but um that uh it has enabled us to shift some conversations and some power in ways that we did not beforehand Hmm.
1: well you don't come across as a glass half empty writer (laughs)
0: You don't come across
1: <laughs> as a rah-rah writer. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've taken up a lot of your time, Chris, but I wanted to ask you one last question, which is, uh, what are you working on now?
0: Sure. So a lot of folks who do um, education or, or public health work kind of have like a population or a topic, educational or health topic they focus on. And my work has always kind of been guided by like, who am I in community with? Who am I collaborating with? Like, what are the things happening that we need to be working on? And, you know, that's sort of how I ended up doing the project that led to this book. So more recently, I've been um, working on a project called the Trans Youth Justice Project that started a couple of years ago because an an organization, um, a statewide um, LGBTQ youth serving organization wanted to do some work for trans youth and um, who are often, you know, kind of Uh, lumped under, uh, you know, LGBTQ youth um, services and work. Um, And that has, for the last couple of years, turned into this really amazing project back in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where it started um, to do this um, leadership development and political education program for trans youth. So it got disrupted by COVID and we've moved it online and, and done it a couple of times. And so it's been this really generative, um, supportive space for young people, especially in this really awful year. Um, and so it's based on the idea that, like, we know that young trans people um, are, you know, disproportionately likely to have all these negative outcomes, and the multiply marginalized trans youth, trans youth of color, disabled trans youth, et cetera, um, are even more likely to. Um, bear the brunt of these inequalities Um, but there's just so much scholarship and programming that's like what how do we fix them right like this idea that they're broken or victimized and this program is about critical consciousness raising and, and leadership development, and the idea that marginalized young people can be the leaders in our collective liberation, that they have the skills and tools and need the support of adult accomplices to, um, to change the world. And then in that process, they also build community and build self-efficacy and eventually contribute to reducing the like very real um, negative um, mental health outcomes that we see among queer and trans youth. Um, So I've been working on that, and I'm also going to be working on a new book for the UC um, Press uh, Reproductive Justice series that my other book is in. So there's a series of primers um, coming out. The first one, Loretta Ross and Ricky Sollinger wrote a couple of years ago, and that's Reproductive Justice and Introduction. And then there's going to be a bunch more coming out on different topics, and mine's going to be on youth and organizing. And these are like accessible kind of crossover books that are academics, but also students and organizers and, um, you know, professionals to learn more about a topic in reproductive justice and, um, and how they can work in, alongside and within reproductive justice movements. So that's what I've been working on most recently.
1: Well, you sound pretty busy. Um, <laughs> and I'm going <gonna> <laughs> to hold on to that um, um, idea of marginalized young people can be the leader in our collective liberation. Because I like that, and that gives me hope. Good. So uh, the book is Distributing Condoms and Hope, The Racialized Politics of Youth, Sexual Health by Chris Barcelos. Uh, It's really eye-opening, and I highly recommend it if you want to have your um, ideas about things messed up in a good way.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Excellent. Chris, thanks so much
0: for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me.